You might expect that a company that made typewriters would be extinct by now, but IBM remains at the forefront of technology by constantly driving progress through innovation. There was a time when the technology we created were punch card tabulators or selectric typewriters or vacuum tube powered computers. Today, that emerging technology or the key enterprise technology, yes, it's cloud-based and increasingly artificial intelligence because of the phenomenon of data. But we want to ground that in this is what IBM always does. That's John Awada, Senior Vice President and Chief Brand Officer at IBM, and my guest on today's episode of the Page Society's new CCO podcast, where we explore what it takes to be a next-gen CCO. I'm Stacy Tank, CCO at The Home Depot. Today I'm talking with John about the evolution of communications and marketing at IBM. John, thank you so much for being here today. It's really delightful to have you, especially um, with your incredible career and body of work at IBM and now with your impending retirement, which is very exciting. Uh, excited to hear some of the advice and wisdom that you have from all of those years in your rich career. Maybe you can start by talking to us a little bit about your role as chief brand officer and what that really means. For reasons that I didn't plan for, I've spent most of my career at corporate headquarters for IBM, and I've served under four CEOs and worked for three. So I learned a lot about complex issues that affect corporations of the size and scope of an IBM. Earlier this year, I moved into the chief brand officer role. It was quite a, a shock, frankly, in the beginning of first business day of 2008. The CEO of IBM at the time, Sam Palmasano, asked to see me. And he said, we're going to put together marketing, communications, and uh, what we call corporate citizenship into one organization. And asking Sam about the mandate and what he wanted to be done, he didn't want just the IBM company to speak with one voice because you can achieve consistency of messaging through good collaboration and partnering, which we have and had. But I think if you wanted to go deeper than messaging and positioning into the actual experience people have with the company, you need to have more at your disposal, more levers to pull, more resources to deploy. And clearly with marketing, that was the case. A lot of folks are trying to take a unified approach for their enterprise between communications and marketing because we know at the end of the day we show up as one organization in society and community, in the environment, and we want to show up with one voice. But a lot of us struggle with that because mm -hmm. there are sometimes separate leaders with different views of where things should go. What kinds of advice do you give to people that don't have this unified role that naturally by org design structure creates the alignment where folks have a CCO and a CMO and they're striving for alignment, but they're struggling. What kind of advice do you have for folks in that position? What I've learned and experienced at IBM is how you conceive of your role as CCO. If you show up as a CCO and you bring to the role only one aspect of the role, then that's very natural for the CEO to see you that way. It may be comfortable for us. We might come out of a media relations or external relations orientation, or in my case, more of an exec communications and internal communications orientation. And if you bring that to the role, then naturally the CEO will say, oh, well, that's John or that's Stacy. And they always talk to me about media relations, or they talk to me about my speeches, or they talk about employees. On the other hand, you bring to the role what I think is the best part of being a CCO, and that is the fulsomeness 
and the holistic view of a corporation with all of its stakeholders and decision makers who bear on on the company. Mm -hmm. And when you talk to the CEO and other members of senior leadership with that perspective, then the CEO will naturally look to you over time and say, well, Stacy always brings to me an integrated view of the business. And you know what? The only other person who has to think that way is the CEO. IBM has been in a transformation, as all companies go through transformations, of course, and evolutions. And you've really been in the cockpit of that transformation, especially as you thought about brand and corporate character and culture. Can you narrate the journey that you have been on? By the way, my granddad was a 30-year IBMer. So IBM has always had a really close place in my heart. I would just love to hear you narrate some of that journey. Yeah, and I think to make it relatable to our colleagues at other companies and agencies, the big learning for me has been what not to change. It's very easy to misread, I believe, the things that define a corporation that should endure. And you can hang on to things that really should not define the corporation and should not endure. Like some of the things your granddad probably really loved about IBM. And I remember things like company golf courses and wonderful benefits and things like that. And I do miss some of those things. But if you hang on to those things that really have never defined the company, then it could lead you astray very easily. And my goodness, over our history and over my experience with IBM, there have been times when I think we misread the things that we should hang on to, the things that defined us a bit too long. Some of them could be products. Some of them could be aspects of the employee relationship. It could be the client sets that we think we serve. It could be an economic model that we really have depended on. And all those things, if they're not the things that should endure, can impede your ability to change when times require it. That's fascinating. And you're so close to it in the moment that it's hard to be objective, too, I imagine. One of the, I think, most symbolic things that has been present in American society, at least over the last five plus years, has been Watson as a symbol of innovation and change and what's to come and the optimism, I think, around the possibilities of all the good things that can come from technology. Can you talk about how Watson was born as a concept and how it sort of matured and what it did for your brand? In the case of Watson, when the research scientists first came forward and talked to me about this technology that they were going to hopefully create, it wasn't called Watson, it had a code name. When I understood that they intended to build a form of artificial intelligence that would play and compete and hopefully beat the two best human champions at Jeopardy on national TV, the first thing that came to mind was not, oh, this is wonderful. <laughs> it was, this is controversial. So I went off and thought about it. And one of the things I did is uh, I asked the team to pull out all of the public reaction to Deep Blue a supercomputer we built in the 1990s that defeated Gary Kasparov, a reigning chess grandmaster. And I looked at all of the press coverage, and while a third of it to half of it was positive, there was quite a bit of sentiment saying, this is worrisome. In fact, a headline from a cover story I put up on the wall in my conference room was, be afraid, be very afraid. So I thought if that was the public reaction or some of the public reaction to a supercomputer playing chess. What's going to happen when a talking computer beats two humans at a game that seems to be much more about 
how we think and how we imagine and how we understand things like metaphors and puns and allusions and context. It would have to speak on national television, and we tested voices to see how people felt. And one voice, by the way, the focus group said it was creepy. So it tells you that even the choice of voices can have an immediate visceral reaction, a very emotional reaction. We were not going to depict Watson on television as a big you know, server or supercomputer, but rather we work with the engineers and designers on the avatar, which um, we still use today. And most importantly was the positioning of Watson. And it was in that period of time when he beat Jennings and Rudder, the two champions in Jeopardy, that we never celebrated or even talked about man versus machine. But from that start, man and machine and what humans can do together with technology like Watson. And I must say, I'm glad we did all of that because that was in 2011. And here we are six, seven years later. And look at the conversations that people are having about artificial intelligence today. Some of it, you know, quite wonderful and people feeling it's good. You know, let's have more assistance. And others, though, are worried about everything over loss of control to sentience and autonomy and things like that and job destruction. And our data research shows that Watson still has a very favorability rating, I guess, because of how the technology has been stewarded. I trace it back to that reaction to hearing about Watson or what became Watson for the first time and, and viewing it not necessarily as a 100% positive thing. I think in a lot of the communication materials, you see Watson making humans better mm-hmm. and supporting humans to be successful, which positions it as friend, not foe. We don't want him to seem like a human being, and we never want to lose the fact or to remind people in some way that this is a machine, this is a technology. It is not trying to be us. You have a visionary CEO in Ginny, and have worked with her, I imagine, quite a bit to narrate where the company has been, where the company is going. Can you talk a little bit about the work that you've done together and the narrative in terms of where you're taking the company for its next generation? And I think the learning that I would share is it isn't about messaging because a CEO, whether it's CEOs talking to his or her own employees or to the customer or the investor, you're always trying to convince them to believe something. For them to believe something, it can't just be a key message because, you know, I can understand your key message. I might even say it's a good message. I might agree with it. But it doesn't mean you've altered my belief because ultimately you want people to do something. You want your workforce to take the company to this next destination. You want your investors to stay in the stock or you want investors to come into the stock. You want the governments to do or not do certain things. You want future employees to choose to be IBMers. If you start with the standpoint of it's not about messaging or even information or about opinion or perception, it's about behavior, then you unlock the mechanisms of behavior. And that has more to do with drivers of what people believe because you act upon what you believe. You don't necessarily act upon what you understand. Then you approach the exec comms role very differently. It's a different task, which I find quite gratifying. It makes a lot of sense and it feels much more substantive than telling all your key messages and rifling those off in interviews. With the idea of making credible arguments at the center, where is IBM going? 
I'd start with what has always been the case with the company. That's the coherence of our business through time, in our case, 106 years. And that is we create technology and apply it to drive progress in business. As simple as that sounds, both parts of that equation constantly move through time. You need to apply them to transform how you work. And that's not just install a new piece of software or use a cloud or use Watson. You have to transform your business processes, your business design. It's hard work. We work both of those. So Jenny's narrative today is, yes, cloud and data and artificial intelligence, but it's grounded in something that I hope both IBMers and our clients and others will recognize as quintessentially IBM. It's how do we use technology to transform businesses and ultimately how the world works. Fantastic. Can you talk about how digital engagement and then systems around digital engagement help to carry some of those points of argumentation? You start with people's behavior. People want to not just get information, they want to transact, they want to do something. There must be utility in that. And whether it's your own workforce or whether it's clients or other stakeholders, I've learned that the most powerful form of digital engagement starts with what do you want them to do? And how do we make that not just easy for them, but how do we make that feel like a service to them? That feels pretty far afield, perhaps, from communications, but it comes back to a simple conversation anyone can have with the CEO. If you simply ask the CEO not what you want people to know, but what do you want people to do, and you work backwards from that, you find a role for digital and digital engagement. You see it very clearly. That it isn't about more publishing and storytelling, which is, I know is very fashionable now, or more original content creation, which... I think companies are drunk on that, and um, we inflict our content on people. Then we worry why we're, we're getting you know, better metrics in terms of hits and likes and shares and all those things. But again, that's because we believe if you're chasing that as the goal, the goal is information and people consuming content versus, I think, what every CEO and every business leader would prefer, which is, what do you want people to do? <laughs> It may require content or it may require something else like applications. And there we're back to the role of integrator, which is you're not going to be CIO as well as CCO, I don't think. Well, you might, Stacey, but <laughs> on your way to CEO. But, but there you say, well, then we have to have a collaboration with a different part of the company because here the goal is not publishing. The goal here is something else. That's how I would come at it. In a world where we, I think, all hope that our employees will become our best spokespeople, you have almost 400,000 mm -hmm. employees, you're saying. What do you want your employees to do when it comes to just showing up in the world and, you know, whether that's talking about your corporate character or just illuminating, hey, here's what I do every day, here's what it means to be an IBMer. Yeah. What do you want them to do out in the public space? I start with your behavior as IBMers more than being, quote, brand ambassadors. I'm talking more about behavior that we would like to see that exemplifies our company at its best. How do you do that? And that gets you to the mission of your culture. And the culture is the foundation of your employees, not with their messages, but with their behavior. So that's point number one. What does it mean to really be, in our case, an IBMer? Secondly, if you accept that social is not only a place where people as consumers get information and so forth, but as professionals, this is where we're going to learn and this is where we're going to influence. 
So our positioning when it comes to our workforce as a professional workforce is it's in your interest as a professional, whether it's a computer science or human resources or supply chain or communications, you need to be expert at social. It does not mean we expect you to retweet everything coming from the IBM handle, although that would be nice. It means that it's in your own interests to be in the right conversations, in the right social communities for your own benefit. Makes a lot of sense. And maybe tagging into that concept of being at the forefront of the profession, you've been known throughout your very rich career for being a bit of a futurist. Hmm. So I'm curious to ask you, what's been a surprising thing that's happened that just didn't play out the way you thought it would as you looked ahead to the future? And what do you think is coming in the next five or 10 years that may fundamentally change the office of the CCO? A lot of things I thought were, were going to be important didn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> I still have an avatar wandering around Second Life somewhere. There you uh, go. You know, that's in search of a, you know, something to do. Part of the reason why, I th- thank you, by the way, for those kind, kind words. I don't think of myself as a futurist. I do think of myself as somebody who has learned through a very tough time that if you don't think about the future, you may not have one. As I think about the future, I come back to the following. When I went to school uh, a long time ago, I went to the School of Journalism and Mass Communications. What we all were part of was that we were dealing in a world where the only way you could think about the world was segments. You can only think about mass audiences. The newspaper reporter or the radio journalist, or the advertising professional, or the public relations practitioner. The model, there was no other choice than to think about segments of populations and how to reach them. That model, while still important and relevant, is receding because of the reality that we're going to deal with people as unique individuals. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to sound like the IBM guy talking about data and artificial intelligence, but the only reason why we inevitably have to be driven to dealing with individuals, whether they're employees or customers or neighbors, as unique individuals is because if we choose not to take advantage of the data that they are generating as individuals and sharing, our competitors will. Mm-hmm. And that means taking advantage of technology and data and analytics and artificial intelligence and all of that, which I know to a lot of people sounds like really uncomfortable but it's just going to happen. You know, if we think about it in our daily lives, it makes a lot of sense in the context of companies and brands helping to solve your problems. So I was shopping for groceries. You know, I'm traveling and my family, they were out of milk and eggs. That's okay. I can go on my phone and I can order groceries to get delivered. And now the company that I order from has an algorithm where they say, oops, wait, before you check out, you forgot the yogurt. And I go, oh, my gosh, I forgot the yogurt. (laughs) Thanks for telling me. You know, add to cart. So if it's useful in an individualized way, I think that it's— Were you creeped out by that or were you you were grateful? I was so grateful because my 8-year-old son would have been calling me, Mom, you forgot the yogurt, and, you know, putting one more thing on my to-do list. Okay. Well, you see, because you perceived it as not as an intrusion— but as a service to you, Mm -hmm. right? Absolutely. And that's you as a consumer. But now here's you as a Home Depot executive. Here's you as a member of whatever political party, if you are a member of a political party. Here's you as a commuter. Here's you as a parent. Why wouldn't you come to expect that level of personalization, anticipation, 
and delivery of service, whether that service is a piece of information, an answer, a tool, a resource, whatever it is, at the right time because it knows you. Exactly. Are you going to say, this is weird, this is creepy, this is wrong? Or are you going to have the same reaction you did, which is, oh, thank you, thank you. And I just don't know why we as communicators think that's somebody else's job. I think that's wise words of wisdom for all of us and very true. Speaking of capabilities and adding value to our organizations, what are the capabilities as you look across your organization, things that you've been trying to further develop in your people to get them ready to be this type of leader that you're describing? This is probably going to surprise some people, even on my own <laughs> team. I really don't pay a lot of attention to metrics and measurements. And I know for a lot of people who really advocate for that, that might be not what they want to hear. What I do mean is, I think coming out of the tradition and communications for the past 30-something years, relationships still matter, my goodness, in producing content that breaks through and causes people to act so, so rare. But we need to augment that. We need to add to that the ability to build a system, and I mean digital technical system, that allows us to personalize, automatically personalize this engagement. And again, to my, I will use the term dismay, some of my colleagues in communications don't feel like that's communications anymore. My response to that is, if we don't embrace this and build out that, that capability, somebody else will. And our world of communications will still be important, but it will be smaller and smaller and smaller because we will go with the smaller and smaller importance of the media industry and so forth. What I've pushed the team to do is to not absolutely not walk away from the relationship intensive part of our profession, nor the craft of great content and great rhetoric and all of that, but to add to that literally building the digital systems and all of the skills that are required to do that so that we can engage people one-to-one -one at scale. And in some cases, you know, we're talking about millions and millions of people. And it's there. You know, it's available. The technology is there. It does not cost a fortune. But we just have to be willing to throw ourselves into this future. So, John, as you close a 30-year career, starting as an intern and now sailing off into the sunset as someone who truly set the tone for our function, someone who I looked up to as I was a young communicator, someone who broadened the role, had the true trust of four CEOs, was a true business partner at the table with your business hat on first and your communications and marketing and brand hat on second. What words of wisdom do you have for us as you head into your retirement? <laughs> Thank you for all that, Stacey. <laughs> and all I can offer is what I've learned. One thing I've learned, which I'm so glad the Page Society stands for here, is the importance of a corporation's character. It isn't to be confused with ethics. Every company should behave ethically. Every company should comply with what is required. I'm talking more about the character of, of yourself or myself or my children. I'm talking about what makes us distinctive and unique individuals. And I think corporations lose their way because they, they forget who they are uniquely. And it's not about messaging that through advertising or through media relations or through speeches. It's about actually being that. But it starts with defining it. And it gets back to the things that could be temporal, 
Sometimes the things that define our corporations last a very long time. But sometimes if you get the definition of the corporate character right, it can be a touchstone that serves the corporation through times of great change and allows them to not forget who they are. In fact, it compels them to change in order to remain true to what has always defined them. And there are so many examples in the world today, happily, whether it's Apple or Nike, I'd like to think IBM is one that seems to be consistently the same company, and yet so many things about it have come and gone. So character is so important, and that's like a kiss is still a kiss. At the other end, what I've also learned is to run toward the new, and not everything pans out, as communicators, I mean. But we should not be afraid or hesitant or frozen in time because we're comfortable in that space. We should try out the new, and particularly in this historic period where we are going to go from dealing with people as demographic slices and populations and publics and things like that to unique individuals and to serve them based on how they wish to be served and engaged with. And that's an incredibly exciting time. As I get ready to um, wrap things up at IBM, I'm very optimistic about my own company, having gone through another transformation now. So the time is right. And I'm optimistic about profession. I think the opportunities for public relations and communications professionals are as big as we want them to be. But to do that, we have to be willing. We have to be willing to embrace the new. Well, John, I can't thank you enough. Thank you so, so much for thank being you, with Stacey. us. Thank you, Stacey. Thank you. Really enjoyed the conversation and uh, appreciate the, uh, the chance to reflect a little bit as well. That's all for this episode of the new CCO Podcast. We hope you'll join us again.